0: to the What's Next podcast, where I have the pleasure of welcoming Mike Michalowicz to What's Next today. You know, I'm going to start by saying he's completely an underachiever. So here are his little tidbits. Mike launched three multimillion dollar companies before his 35th birthday. He was awarded New Jersey's SBA Young Entrepreneur of the Year when he was 26. He sold his first company to private equity and his second firm to a Fortune 500. He's the author of The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, The Pumpkin Plan, Profit First, and his latest Clockwork, which was on Inc.'s four new business books to read before the end of summer. So welcome to the podcast today.
1: Tiffany, thank you so much for having me. I'm I uh, I'm appreciative of being here, and I sound a little bit like an arrogant jerk after you read off that bio.
0: <laughs> right? I go, he's an underachiever. Yeah, I know. I'm like,
1: oh, oh here I go.
0: Boom, boom, boom. Right? Right? And and I always say when people like I send my bio off before something, and I go, I do not want you to read the whole bio. Like just pick a couple sentences from it, depending on like what the purpose of it is. Mm. If they really go deep and start reading it, I always want to like, oh, can I have that clip and send it to my mom because she thinks I know <laughs> anything. Right. I
1: love it. It's interesting. Like so, you you know, you read the the highlight bullet points, but there's just as many low points. It'd be funny if someone introduced it, like you know, here's Mike McCallowitz. He uh, he struggled financially for years. He actually, after selling his second company, went nearly bankrupt. Uh, he destroyed that business. You know, he's been in three lawsuits where he's lost every single one. Like if you went through a list like that, it's like oh my god, who is this guy? But I think that's the reality. It's, it's as many highs as you hear. There's as many lows too.
0: I think, you know, that's a great point. I wonder if we could, you know, uh, so let's wind it back. All right. Oh, nice sound effect. Yeah, good, right? Okay, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next Podcast, where I have Mike McCallowitz joining me today. And here are the low points
1: <laughs> right.
0: of his right. career. Like, you know, and then there's only one way to go, which is up, right? So
1: Right, right. You know, Yeah. I totally agree, and but I think the reality is, as I already alluded to, is that your journey, my journey, everyone's journey has its peaks, but it, it has its valleys too. And uh, I, I hope no one tunes out when they hear, "Oh, uh, you know, he sold a, a coming to a Fortune 500 and so forth," because then then it, it seems impractical or impossible for many listeners. And that that's my big fear. Um, I think what I, what I've experienced on the upside is doable for anybody if you appreciate the downsides we face too.
0: Well, I also think, you know, it's sort of, you know, you say author and entrepreneur, it's like author and survivor. Right, right, right. right. That's funny. The the new term of an entrepreneur is survivor, right? Like you're on the island and you're just of business and you're just trying to survive.
1: Yeah, it really is. It really is. I think, you know, ultimately that many of the successes I've experienced when I really diagnosed the triggers for it, it was luck that I was in the right place at the right time. Now, for luck to manifest, it requires extraordinary effort. You have to be in the right place uh, for that time, that moment to happen. But you know, my second company was in computer crime investigation, and it was acquired by a Fortune 500 because of one of the marquee cases we managed. We managed the Enron trial, not the whole trial, but we were one of the lead investigators, and as a result, that puts on a map immediately. Now, if I started my business six months later, the Enron trial opportunity have passed by me. I wonder if I started at six months earlier, if maybe I've been too entrenched to not pursue that opportunity aggressively. I just know that timing is a major factor for some of the successes I've had and is often discounted as insignificant. It's it's the raw effort of the entrepreneur. Now I'm not saying we have, you know, we can just sit back and hope luck will will fall into our lap. We got to be around, but luck is a undercredited um, necessity I think for some success
0: well before we dig into that because I, I definitely am a, a huge fan of timing and uh, you know when when people and when companies do certain things but I always like to start out this uh, podcast with what I call bullish and bearish it's just a way although we've already gotten started <laughs> but to just have some fun with some topics I know you are passionate about and you know the bullish is you're really for it. Bearish is you're against it, and in all transparency, rarely does anyone answer it that way. <laughs> it's- right, of course. Okay, all right. So you know, don't feel I'll that you can't, this. you know, give me the the middle of the road answer, but try to go bullish and bearish. All right, you ready for okay. the first one? Yeah. All right, first one. Saying no more can actually help you grow.
1: Bullish.
0: Yes, we will get into that. So, I, I love that whole thought process. All right, the next one is disconnect from your business for four weeks, and you will be better off for it.
1: Holy smokes, bullish! Right. I have a bullish. See, these are, horn these are here.
0: softballs. These are softballs.
1: Yeah. yeah, you're really setting me
0: up. I'm yeah. setting you up. All right, the third one, in the spirit of Halloween, since we, uh, you know, are in, around that time of year, you can learn from pumpkin farmers. <laughs> on how to build a really successful business.
1: Yeah, bullish on that, but specifically colossal pumpkin farmers. Um, but I believe also in nature, there's a hundred million different resources for us to use to grow our businesses. We just have to pay attention.
0: So I, I'm actually going to start on on uh, the pumpkin plan because... You know, uh, as I mentioned, we were, you know, both authors, uh, we had books that came out, I think just a week apart from each other Yeah, and, uh, with the same,
1: with the same editor, the same nonetheless, portfolio,
0: go portfolio. Right. But, yeah. um, uh, you know, I found the, the, the pumpkin plant fascinating because when I was looking for a metaphor for the book, right. It was in the opening of my book was going to be this metaphor of cooking. You know, that mm. you can have the same ingredients and Julia Child can have the same ingredients. And I'm going to guess hers is going to taste a lot better than yours, even though it's exactly the same ingredients. Because only you know, slightly better, only child. Slightly, right. But <laughs> only slightly. a lot of it has to do with the order and the timing and how they cook it. And you know what I mean? Which yes. right, I was looking for a metaphor as well. And your metaphor in the pumpkin farm <clears> was <throat> so much better. So, wow. you know. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you um, start with seeds because I think that is the most important part of that entire analogy.
1: Yeah, so I found this faction of pumpkin farmers that are colossal pumpkin farmers. Lovingly, they identify themselves as lords of the gourds. By the way, and this small faction of pumpkin farmers we we've, we've all seen their you know pictures in the newspaper or leaning against that pumpkin that's as big as a car they follow a very specific process or sequence that uh i believe if businesses follow the same thing will also experience colossal but organic growth without the need necessity for outside funding and so forth it does start with seeds and specifically a colossal farmer will be highly selective of a seed that matches their soil content the climate that where they live and you can grow colossal pumpkins in the most northern parts of canada the most southern parts of mexico and everywhere in between anywhere in the in the planet uh, but you got to pick the right seed. And m- what I argue for entrepreneurs is there is a seed and surprise, surprise, it's a Venn diagram, but there's a seed that facilitates colossal growth. And the the th- elements that make up the seed are this. One is a distinct uniqueness, something that makes you different. Most entrepreneurs, and I'd argue, ordinary entrepreneurs believe that better is better, colossal entrepreneurs know that different is better you must distinguish yourself and really what it is is capturing your own idiosyncrasies and having your business be a platform of expression of that that's the essence of it but it has to intersect with the other element which is client demand meaning you can you know maybe you're you're you have a propensity to dress up like bozo the clown but you know walking around going waka waka and no one wants to buy that won't move your business forward so what makes you distinct as an individual? How can the business be an amplification of it? And who's the community that wants to consume that? So that's the second element. And then the third element is systemization, meaning we have to deliver something unique to a specific community, but we have to deliver it on automatic. Because if it if it is carried on our own shoulders, and this is the challenge so many entrepreneurs face, if we carry a business on our own shoulders, it can only scale to the, our ability to contribute to, to our effort. And therefore it's a time for money trap. So we need to define this uniqueness, serve it to customers in a way that it can be without the active input of the entrepreneur. And if you can pull all three of those elements off, you have a seed that can literally grow to any size. It can scale to any size.
0: Well, and one of the one of the things in there, you know, what I like is um, well, there's a couple things, right? I love the seed concept because I think that that's a huge part of it. And people get so focused on the colossal pumpkin, they for, they don't it sort of deconstruct and work backwards to well, how did that colossal pumpkin actually happen? They just get very fixated on the colossal pumpkin um, in this analogy that we're using. Um, but but I'd love to hear because that is a very specific niche. It's a it's a small niche. It's a very focused, it has a very finite set of customers who want to buy that kind of product. And how do you make sure that there's enough demand, right? That there's enough, even though you have a passion for it, whatever it is, and making sure there's enough customer demand to actually build a business around it.
1: So it starts off by looking at your existing customer base. Now, I'm, I'm not saying the day you start a business... Uh, pick that community, and you know, good luck. I think when we start a business, there is a lot of learning that happens. That original business plan we came up with inevitably goes out the window. Uh, the projections we had financially don't come true. The advisory board that we were assured we're going to step up and help us launch our business never appear, and that client base we anticipated rarely um, materializes either. What we need to do is in the beginning stages is to to serve customers that are willing to consume from us. But then pretty quickly we need to bifurcate the good customers from the not so good customers. And those good customers are the ones who pay you well, um, timely, um, meaning they're demonstrating through their actions, they value what you offer. And they they pass what I call the the crush cringe factor, meaning (laughs) when you do business with them, do you enjoy the interaction or is it causing you to cringe? Because if, if a customer pays you well and you can't stand them anyway, uh, you can't deliver great service to them. But if, you, if they pay you well and you, they enjoy the experience of working with you and you have a crush on them, meaning you enjoy the, the, um, the experience, this is someone that you can elevate and serve better. Once you identify that customer, that's often a seedling for the community itself. We need to invest time to learn about them. Where do they congregate? You know, what makes them unique in who they are? Often it's very easy to identify a niche based upon industry. So if you're in a B2B business, that's pretty easy. But if you own a coffee shop, uh, you're not selling B2B, you're selling B2C. You have to observe who your best customers are. Is it a man or a woman? Um, is it a, a mom uh, or is it single, a single woman? Or is it a dad or is it a single dad? You've know, wh- you got to learn about the community. Why are they coming to you? Are they professionals that are using this as an environment to network? Or is this just how they get this day started before they go to exercise class? And they're really it's an exercise community. Once you understand who your best customers are, we need to penetrate that market. By asking our best customers, where do you congregate? And I wouldn't use those exact words, but find out where the birds of a feather are flocking together and appear there. Then you can start uh, offering your services and products to that community and start getting traction there. That's that's how you go about it, and that's how you prove it's out there. Now, and one last thing is, you can do some statistical analysis too, especially in in selling to industry. So B two B is the easiest to identify established community because I can say, you know, I sell to accountants, which one of my companies does. It's very easy to go and see how many accounting conferences there are, and to go to some you know list service and identify how big their list is. It's a very easy way to measure market. But when you sell to a demographic that's, you know, man or woman or something. There's no, you know, there's no like, you know, single moms who like coffee conference. Um, and there's no psychographic psychographic type of conferences either. So it's a little harder to assemble that knowledge. Um, but you can always pierce the community. You can always find where that bird of a feather is flocking and, and appear there.
0: Yeah. And I think there's a lot of really great advice there, uh, you know, around sort of focusing on uh, the right set of customers, potentially ignore is too strong of a word. So I'm going to put that in sort of air quotes, right? But ignore those that aren't going to get move the needle for you, uh, that you don't get caught in that trap of trying to fix, uh, you know, a set of customers that are never going to really give you more revenue. Um, and let me, let me use that as a pivot point to say, they're really not going to drive your profitability, which then sort of your next book was, was uh, profit first, which which I found um, interesting. So I'm you know not an accountant, uh, and P mm-hmm. and Ls are not my friend. So I always hire really smart people <laughs> to be around me yeah, yeah, when right. I was managing my P and Ls. Um, but but why don't you step the listeners through sort of wh- how you landed at profit first and and how you really tried to flip it on its head.
1: So I uh, I do the same thing. I, I don't look at p ls or cash flow statements. I don't even know how to read one, quite frankly, or a balance sheet. So I do say same. I hire smart people, but there was this one dummy who kept on inserting themselves and messing everything up, and that was me. I would uh, I would ignore any attempt to read those documents or, or, or know what my KPIs were, my key performance indicators, and all these different things and the budgets. I would just revert to what I call bank balance accounting, see if I had money or not. And if I did, I'd spend it. And if I didn't, I would enter panic mode. And what I found is I I thought I was the only guy doing this, but I think it's actually relatively typical that many entrepreneurs, particularly of smaller sized businesses, sub 10 million, are actually looking at their bank balance to determine the next action they should take. So what I decided was, or what I realized, I should say, is that it's very difficult for myself to change my own behavior. And I believe that's true for most of us even though our behavior may not be productive, to change is very difficult. So I think the best solution is to set a system that allows us to continue a behavior, but channel it to a positive outcome. So the fact that I, I did this bank balance accounting process, I devised a system for myself where I could continue logging log my bank accounts, but now know proactively what money was intended for what purpose before I spent a penny. And how I did this was by setting up multiple accounts. But I also realized, and this ultimately became the title of the book, is that Cash management for most entrepreneurs is a behavioral-based system. We may say we're logical, but we're, we're not. We're very emotionally driven. And the behavior we have is that when something, and this is true not just with money, anything in life, when something is, comes last, it, it means it's insignificant. Like if I said, you know, my health, I'm gonna, my health comes last. What I'm saying is my health doesn't matter. Um, but if it's important to me, I'll say my health comes first. So it's human nature. When something comes first, it's a priority it gets focused on. And when something comes last, it's the perpetual manana syndrome. The great irony of what we've been told about profit until recently is that profit comes last. Actually, our vernacular is you know, profit's the bottom line, last. It's the year end, last. So most entrepreneurs don't consider profit until these intervals, maybe once a quarter, Uh, maybe once a month if they're lucky. But most entrepreneurs wait till tax season and then they look at their income and look at the profit and there's no profit and they wait for another year. As a result, by the way, uh, I read a study that 83% of businesses are surviving check by check. What the core principle of Profit First is, is to set the system up to work with our existing behavior. We put profit first. And in execution, this is what you do. Every time you have a sale for your business, you immediately take a predetermined percentage and allocate it toward profit. So I can say it's ten percent. You know, a thousand bucks comes in today. I take ten percent. It's a hundred dollars. I tuck it away and hide it away from my business, and then I run off the remainder. It's the pay yourself first principle that we've been told to use in our personal lives applied to our business
0: lives. Yeah, and 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 you know, I find that fascinating because you know, just I'm a sort of sales executive, right? So I'm. I'm the, what's the sales? I'm the top of the, how am I going to pay the bills? Right? Everyone looks to us, are you hitting revenue? You know, and if, and if sales start to get soft, sometimes people will say, well, the way we can solve that is let's cut costs, right? To improve the profitability if sales are starting to potentially decline, um, putting profit first and saying, you know, what is the profitability of a deal? I used to work for somebody who would say, look, you know, we we have to make 30 points of margin. I'm making up the number, but you know, 30 points of margin on every deal. And so whatever you do, like we're just, if it goes below 30 points of margin, like we need 92 approvals, right? Because that's our number. And so you can start at, you know, 50% and then know that you have this you know, wiggle room between 50 and 30 that we, you know, through negotiation based on volume, whatever it might be, you've got this room to to move. Um, and so it gives, you know, a clear direction of parameters or, you know, this gating lane uh, uh, of where we can move the quote unquote profit of a particular deal. But what I always found uh, in a, you know, sort of not the best as it related to that was the cost of goods sold. I never felt like was accurate. So what I mean by that is, okay, you know, I'm the salesperson. They, they have me in cogs, you know, I'm X amount of dollars. Here's the deal. Here's the profit. Like this is how much it cost us on cogs, but then they don't take uh, into consideration the fact that seven people got on an airplane and flew to meet the executive. And you know what I mean? Like that never gets put into the deal. right? Right, And so profitability, you know, how much that margin is, uh, was always, you know, I was always arguing the, well, wait a minute. (laughs) Like you may think selling direct gives you better profitability than selling through a third party. But when you sell direct seven people get on a plane, when you sell through a third party, seven people might get on a plane, but you're not paying them.
1: You know, what's funny is, uh, my, my prior company, my forensic business, I told you we we were involved in the Enron trial. Enron was profitable on paper until the day it was uh, you know, belly up. So what, what the challenge is accounting numbers can be modified and played with uh, as much as we want. And Enron, of course, isn't a very extreme example. But I developed Profit First to be a cash-based system specifically for that because that's non-negotiable. Either you have the cash or not. So when we take the profit out first, say it was at 30%, it's literally 30% of the cash deposits that are hidden away and reserved in a, in a protected uh, bank account. Now you must run the rest of the project off or the business off the remainder. And it's not negotiable because it's, it's a cash basis. It's when, when we start inserting things like the accounting terms, like cost of goods sold and sg and and, is this above the line or below the line uh, expense? That's where we can start playing these games around profitability. So Profit first is just cash based. So we can't play those games.
0: All right. So we've gone from seeds yeah, all right. the way to making money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And now the the next one is, you know, from an entrepreneur standpoint, and I think really from everybody, we're just, I feel like everyone's working harder and longer and, more and faster. And, you know, it's just this deluge of all this information and data. And everyone's talking about, you know, you wake up, you sleep next to your smartphone, you wake up with your smartphone. It's just this massive chaos that we never get a moment to step back and think. And I think for everybody that's important, but you really dug into, you know, what makes entrepreneurs tick. And a lot of it is, if I'm not here, the world, you know, the sky will fall. Yes. So this, this, your latest book, clockwork, I think gives some really practical tips and advice that may make people who are listening to this, to this podcast today, uncomfortable. So I'm all in. So, you know, let, let's start from the top. So kind of, how did you get to this, uh, concept of clockwork and, and what was really the, the, the genesis for it? And then what, what did you learn through the, through the entire writing of the book and what, what has been the reaction so far?
1: So, uh, I'm actually walking into Penguin in a few weeks from now with Kashuk and Adrian and Will and going to sit them down and uh, do my pitch for my next book. And what I believe is there's a Maslowian hierarchy of needs for businesses uh, that it follows almost uncannily the same thing as our personal needs. And in Maslow's hierarchy, the base need is oxygen and, food Wi-Fi. and water. Wi Fi. So, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. So, then in business, <laughs> we run the exact same thing in parallel. And so in business, I believe the foundational need is sales. Uh, That's the oxygen for business. Profit is the next level up, which is the food and water, the nutrition. The next level up is time, which is equivalent to the shelter, I think, in the Maslowian hierarchy of needs or Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And what I'm saying is, is that uh, to build a business to presumably provide for us and give us joy, yet consume all of our time is not sheltering or protecting us. It's not actually providing what we want. So therefore, a successful business is one that has consistent sales, is highly profitable, and it protects the entrepreneur's time so that they can do what they want, when they want, in their personal lives and in their business. So Clockwork was an exploration of businesses where the entrepreneur was able to extract themselves. And I distilled it down to very specific steps that they followed, some consistency I, I found in these businesses that were able to... Have extract the entrepreneur, have them remove from the business and the business to continue to run on automatic and grow on its own. So that's, that's the premise of this book.
0: Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's kind of like the amplification of the four hour work week, right? It's like, yeah. it's like the opposite of it in many ways where that was just a huge runaway hit. Like, Oh my God, how can I work just, you know, four hours or right. four days? Um, I, I I'm ch- going to try at the end of 2018 to take, you know, a good solid two weeks off. And then the beginning of 19, nice. a solid two weeks off. So I I'm actually, you know, trying to do four weeks. I don't know if I'm going to completely unplug, but 2018 has just been just a madness for me. Um, so even if I cut back two thirds, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Um, uh, but I've had people who have just put their smartphones away. Uh, Martin Lindstrom, who wrote small data and biology, um, he, he, uh, he and I are friends, and, and he's been on the podcast as well. And he literally put away his phone for the year, 2018. So I was with mm-hmm. him in Sydney uh, back in March in Australia. And he said, look, we're going to meet at six o'clock, Tiffany. But if you're late, you can't call me. Right. Yeah, that's actually fast. There's yeah. no way to get in touch with me. If you're not going to show, there's, there's no way to get in touch with me. Right. And I'm thinking, oh, it was so much pressure. Like, oh my God, because we've taken so, and and really the reason he did it was this very reason, like to keep commitments and not have an easy out. I'm late. I'm not showing up. I've changed my mind, whatever. Because in, you know, before smartphones, people were like, if I said I was going to be there at six, there would be no way for me to get in touch with that person to tell them I'm not coming. Yes. And so he said, I've, it's completely changed these relationships I have with people in my lives, both personal and professional. So I said, well, I could always, in my head, I'm like, well, I could always call the bar. I could say like, the, you know,
1: <laughs> Right, it always yeah, the eight,
0: five foot eight kind of you know, salt pepper hair. You know what I mean? Like I'm totally describing him in my yeah. head. I'm trying to figure out my way out of, Oh my God, he doesn't have his phone. Right. And I yeah. sure enough, I showed up at six. <laughs> Right. But then I'm walking around the lobby. I couldn't find him, you know, and then instead of going, Hey, I'm here. So it was very interesting mm-hmm. in my head of how much you rely on, uh, you know, l- leaning into, to communicating. So when these entrepreneurs actually remove their themselves from it, what do they have to have in place before they say, okay, I'm going to eject for a moment. Like what, like, yeah. What are the things they have to do? Because I would guess that there's a lot of not prep work, right? But if you're not empowering people along the way, you can't just expect to leave.
1: No, you can't just expect to leave like tomorrow. But uh, I think you got to make a significant decree. And Tiffany, maybe even this applies to your situation, is a four consecutive week vacation. And here's why I found this to be so significant. I found that most businesses, actually every business that I studied that was a small business, that's my community that I focus on, under $25 million in revenue, that these businesses were going through every element of its business on monthly cycles, collections, sales, hiring someone, uh, laying off an employee, maybe engaging new customers. Every element of the business happens typically in monthly cycles. I do a qu- uh, month ends and so forth. Therefore, if the entrepreneur could be both physically and digitally disconnected, for a full consecutive four weeks, the business had to live on its own. So it starts off with this decree. Now, I'm not saying you leave for vacation tomorrow. I suggest for most businesses, it's about 16-month, uh, I'm sorry, 18-month to 24-month runway before you can do this. But set that decree of removing yourself from the business. Then we reverse calculate what needs to happen today to make it a reality. And uh, it starts off with true delegation. Most people actually abdicate their work or uh, micromanage it, meaning they task grab it. You know, do this, do that, and I'll decide uh, Any if any questions come up, I'll decide. So we have to shift to true delegation, which is the assignment of outcomes. Then we got to look at the actual uh, daily work that we're doing and transfer it to other people. Then we start taking little tests. Go away for a week and uh, don't do anything, anything related to work. Come back and see what was broken when you return and fix that. Then do it again. Uh, and I, myself, I'm leaving on my four-week vacation in uh, two months from us recording this, right? Actually, a little bit sooner than that. Um, but I'm leaving for a full month, and we're in the final stages of preparation. I've I've left for 10 consecutive days and came back uh, to, with issues that we had to resolve. Um, I can't say what they will be for every business because there's so many components. But until you decree that you are leaving and co- truly committed to it, we'll continue to be the crutch for our business.
0: And what do you think it does to those people around you? You know, because you know yeah. does it does it increase potentially you know a level of stress for those of, you know of the entrepreneur who says i'm going to leave and so in preparation do other people feel this pressure are there things that those that are on the receiving end of this message can do differently
1: yeah so we had many businesses go through this and there was a mix of responses so, um it, most Most of the interference was actually by the entrepreneur himself. So first of all, there's a challenge of ego. And I experienced this myself. I I left for 10 days. The business was running its own. It didn't need me. There was no one checking in. And about three days into this, I'm like, oh my God, I'm not relevant anymore. And my big, fat, stinking ego kicked up and I started to run interference. I actually started to break my own rules and reach out to the business to reinsert myself and actually started to unwind our progress. The the second challenge, and, and my employees confronted me on this and actually resolved it. The second challenge is where the entrepreneur feels that you know the the employees are doing all this work and making money and and I'm making money off their sweat, their effort. I'm taking advantage of them. Uh, that is rarely the perception of employees, unless you position it that way. It could be, but the most common outcome was an empowerment that entrepreneurs that left. Explain to her employees, this is an opportunity for you to step up to more significant roles. My goal is to be an owner, not an operator. And I want you to be the operators, which is a significant capacity. So step up and step in to this opportunity. And that was the outcome for most. In fact, one, one uh, of the people going through our tests of this uh, about a year ago, her name was Cindy Thomason. She owns a bookkeeping business, has six employees. When she came back, she rated. On a scale of one to 10, one being you desperately want me back in the business immediately. 10, please leave for your next four-week vacation tomorrow. <laughs> Where would you rate what should happen next? And they put it at a 9.5. And they said our biggest fear, and, and you know this is, this points to the, um, the culture that Cindy's developed. They said our biggest fear is you're going to re- reinsert yourself into the business. We love you and appreciate you. We want to step up now, and we want you to be simply our visionary. And um, it gives me goosebumps. So, revisiting that story, that's what we want to do. What we want to do if we come back and our team feels deflated, they felt taken advantage of, uh, if they feel desperately they need us to superhero and swoop in, that's usually, it's inevitably uh, our problem that there's something wrong with the way we positioned it, our culture, and our ego.
0: Well, this has been fantastic. I'm sure you had no idea that I was going to run you through sort of your big, huge bodies of work. But- no, it was awesome. I feel like the seed starts it. Right. And then it grows profit first. And then you got this big tree and it's like, you know, how do you enjoy the fruits of your labor? Right. And that to me is what you have with clockwork. So it's sort of, I, to me it was a full sort of full, full circle moment. Um, and, and as we, as we wrap this up, cause you've given so many little nuggets of wisdom, you know, there are all kinds of people that listen to this individual contributors, small business, big business, you know, et cetera. But you know, as we start thinking about what we want for ourselves uh, you know, in the future, sort of our future self, uh, I, I often ask people and challenge people to write themselves a letter and actually date it a year from now and mail it to themselves or mm-hmm. ask a friend to mail it 12 months from now and then they get it. And I just got one that I did uh, a year ago uh, as well. And I, I could tell by the handwriting, I knew what it was. Someone had mailed it and uh, I opened it up. But, if you were to you know give some advice as to how people can prepare themselves for twelve months from now, not what they need to be doing, but how do they prepare themselves for their for their future selves, what, what would you say?
1: You know for me, it's all about owning our idiosyncrasies. And I think that's the biggest opportunity that's missed, that I missed for the longest time, and I think so many of us entrepreneurs miss is that our business is really a platform of expression. Uh, you know, the vehicle of, of how we deliver it could be manufacturing or service or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's a vehicle for expression. And I think the more we embrace who we naturally are, which we are, and allow our business to be a platform for it, the more joy we bring to ourselves, and therefore, the more joy we bring to others. So own own who you are. I, I think Oscar Wilde was one who said, be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. That's the lesson for our future, in my opinion.
0: Well, that's fantastic. Well, Michael, I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have. And and, you know, it was just a great conversation. Uh, I think I look forward to I can't believe you're already talking about your next book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like,
1: penguins, I, I overwhelm them with my assault of books. Um,
0: yeah. Like I, everyone asked me yeah. about. You know, what are you going to, what's going to be your next one? I'm like, my God, this one's just in diapers. Like I, I, I'm nowhere exactly exactly. talking about the next one, but you know, go for it. Tell the team I said, hi, Uh, I will. But thank you so much for joining me on the what's next podcast today. I hope you uh, hope you had as much fun as I did. And, and I just, I hope our listeners enjoy it, but what's the best way for people to to stay in touch with you?
1: Yeah. So I, I did have a wonderful time. Thank you for having me, Tiffany. And if you want to learn more about me The mecca for all my stuff is mikemichalowicz.com. Here's the beautiful thing. It's the most difficult, worst last name on the planet. And yes, I'm the owner of it. So there's two shortcuts to get there. You can go to Google and type in Mike. That's my first name. Spacebar Mick, M-I-C. Drop down, you'll see the longest, most Polish name ever. That's me. Or my nickname in high school was mikemotorbike.com. Here's the irony, Tiffany. I've never driven a motorcycle. (laughs) But if you go to mikemotorbike.com, that'll get you to my site. All my books are there, chapter downloads for free, of course. I used to write for the Wall Street Journal. That content's up there too for free, and I'm a podcaster myself.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you again, Mike, and thanks to all of our listeners for listening. That was so much fun talking to Mike. I hope you enjoyed Uh, having us talk about the pumpkin plan, which I just love that metaphor and thinking about building these colossal pumpkins and what that means to business and how we can apply this sort of passion and customer demand and focusing on what you do best and then moving and starting to discuss profit because that's what it's all about and really thinking about how do you flip that on your head and put profit first and then all the expenses and selling behind that. Then you start making very different decisions. And then, without a doubt, my favorite was his new book, Clockwork, talking about designing your business and really designing your career in being able to eliminate yourself for a couple of weeks, remove yourself from business and trust that it will just survive. Uh, Your teams will survive, everything will continue going. And really, in the end, everyone's better for it. So, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with author and entrepreneur. Mike Michalowicz. Please check out all his information. Thank you so much for listening in to the What's Next podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave uh, some comments because it's always great to hear what you think. Hope you have an amazing rest of your day. Thank you for tuning in.